Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh, serve fast, serve friendly, lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome back to Conversations with Oscar Combs. Oscar continues his conversation with Coach Joby Hall, and in part two of our four-part series, you're going to hear some remarkable stories about the coaching career and the life of Coach Hall. How did Ketchup play a role in Coach Hall meeting his wife? You're going to find that out. And, of course, there's a fishing story in this episode as well. Coach Hall's pretty good at impressions, and you're going to hear his impression of Coach Adolph Rupp. Coach Hall was a stand-up guy, and that becomes evident throughout his career as he continues his journey to become a head coach, but most importantly, the head coach of the University of Kentucky. It is certainly not easy to follow a legend, and we'll hear about the transition from Coach Rupp to Coach Hall. Coach Hall also discusses with Oscar about one of the most controversial players to ever play for Kentucky and how he handled that situation. I'm Bo Robinson, and I'll rejoin you later on to give you an update on where you can catch up with Oscar and when you can expect part three and part four of Oscar's conversation with Coach Joby Hall. We'll pick up where we left off as Coach Hall has decided to come back to Cynthiana after his playing days at Swanee. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs and Coach Joby Hall. You come home and you become a salesman. I came home and uh, was kind of burned out. And uh, my dad wanted me to take this job that a friend of his had with HJI. And this guy had been with them many years and had amassed a real good living. Now explain H.J. Hines for people who may not know. Well, H.J. Hines was a quality food and uh, condiment company that a lot of people recognize them as Heinz ketchup or Heinz beans. But they had all kinds of fruits and vegetables canned for uh, institutions. They didn't sell to grocery stores, but they sold direct to hotels, restaurants, schools, where there were large producing uh, meals. And uh, so you called on the little restaurants in the town, and you called on the local school and any big factory or hospital or any place they'd have a luncheon. And uh, did that for a couple of years? Yeah, I, I really liked it, and I rose. I was a leading uh, ketchup salesman one year. I was a leading bean soup salesman. Sometimes the best place in the world to get a good meal fairly cheap was at the uh, local school. In the lunchroom. Well, lunchrooms were good customers, but our our foods were such high quality that they were a little more expensive. So in selling to schools, you had to convince the school lady who was in charge of cafeteria that even though they were buying these foods, the kids weren't eating them because the quality wasn't good. So I would go to them after a meal and check the garbage can. And show them, I'd say, they're throwing it all away. You're not feeding these kids. Now, if you had our 
tomato products or our green beans, they'd eat them. So I'd sell a higher-priced product to the school. Well, I was it was my first round, first month, that I made the little school up in Pendleton County. And I went in to the cafeteria, and the cafeteria lady said, Where are you from, Mr. Hall? I said, I'm from Cynthiana. She says, isn't that Harrison County? I said, yeah. She said, we got a teacher here from there. I said, is that right? What's her name? She said, Catherine Dennis. Well, this uh, kind of lit me up. Because? Because uh, I'd known Catherine since she was about a eighth grader freshman high school. I was in the Dixie Dairy Bar one night, and a buddy of mine said, come go with me over to the city hall. Said, the 4-H club's meeting over, and there's the prettiest girl I ever saw, and I want to try to get a date with her. So I said, okay, I'll go with you. So we go over, and Catherine and another girl are sitting up at the top of the stand. So we go up and sit down in front of them. And my buddy asked her for a date. And she said, no, I have a date that day. He said, well, how about the next hour? I'm booked up then. And she just put him off that she had a date. And she didn't. But uh, her mother and dad wouldn't let her date that young. And so I didn't see her much, uh, I guess, four years after me meeting her that one day until that day in the school now she was at uk when i was there and we'd meet crossing the crosswalk her going one way and me and i and we'd always stop and speak but i never had a date with in fact i didn't have many dates because i didn't have money enough (laughs) to have a date and uh, so this uh, autumn night we went to a movie in Cincinnati and I took her to the finest restaurant for dinner, the Mason Inn. Took her back to her where she was living and made another date. Six weeks later we were married and stayed married for 56 years. Three kids. So after you got married, I think you went came back to UK to get your degree? Yeah. She dropped out of teaching, got a job in a jewelry store. And I was still working for Hyde. And I told her that uh, I was never going to get anywhere without a college degree. She just had a partial degree and had a teaching certificate. So she was going to put me through school to get my degree. It was going to take about a year and a half. So I commuted to UK, got my degree in physical education and sociology. It was in January, so there were no jobs. So I took When you got a, your degree. Yeah. So I took a job with Conair Aluminum fabricators and I became a production schedule which was a very good job I scheduled production for the whole play we had about 400 employees and uh, I was uh, at the top of my earning capacity as a matter of fact about two years in I got a raise and it was five dollars short of a maximum raise. So I went in to see the manager and asked him why I didn't get the maximum raise. Wasn't I doing my job? He said, oh, no, you're doing fine. Said, we really appreciate the job you're doing, but we wanted to save a little to give you later. He said, a guy doing your job in Niles, Michigan has been there 17 years and making the same year. Man. Boy, it hit me like a brick. I said, how about me moving to sales where I can advance? No, we've trained you for for the position you're in, and you're valuable there now. Said, uh, we'd have to retrain somebody. 
I said, well, how about uh, quality control? How about let me go to that department? No, we, we got to keep you where you are. I said, how much notice do you want? I already had a child by then. And I said, how much notice do you want? He said, what do you mean? I said, I've got no future here. I said, I'm out of here. So uh, he said, well, i got to have a month. I said, no, I'll give you two weeks to get somebody trained. And I went to UK, the placement office. Went in, went up to the counter. Lady came up. I said, told her who I was, looking for a coaching job. She said, well, it's August. All the jobs are filled. I said, would you check? She went back in the back, came back. Said, there's one job open, Shepherdsville. I said, where is that? She said, well, it's in Bullitt County. I said, where's Bullitt County? She said, south of Louisville. I said, well, give me the particular. So I called and got an interview, went up, got the job. So uh, here I was, uh, assistant football, baseball, and basketball coach, and teaching health and PE, full schedule. And uh, I went up the first, the team had been working out, football team had been working out for a week in shorts and they didn't have a coach and so I go up one week before we play Bardstown which is Garnus Martin and probably the best high school team in the state that time we're gonna open with it so I go out on the field Sunday night and meet the players and they're all in shorts and t-shirts and there's a uh, 22 of them, little pencil neck kids. Some of them were freshmen, sophomore, just real young. And I said, all right, fellas, I said, guess I'm going to be your coach. And I hadn't worked with them. The principal had been giving them callous headaches, running them. And I said, uh, who among you is a quarterback? So one kid held up his hand. I said, come out. I said, uh, give me a running back. And he walked out, two of them. I said, uh, give me a center. And the kid said, I'm a center. I said, give me uh, two guards. Nobody came out. Give me two tackles. Nobody came out. I said, you mean tell me you all don't have guards? They said, coach, we haven't played anything but six-man football. (laughs) So they'd never played 11-man football. And here I am a week. Well, I got three days to practice. Four days, Monday through Thursday, playing Friday night against Bardstown. And uh, I put them together in formation. I don't have time to coach any fundamentals. I got one kid that's really sad, and I make him a quarterback. And he's going to run the ball a lot because we're going to play Notre Dame box in the T formation. And uh, Harold Sipes was his name. He was a senior, and he was a great kid, great athlete, good student, good hard-working young. And uh, we go over and play Bardstown. First quarter, he gets knocked out, gets a concussion. They have to take him to the hospital in the ambulance. First kickoff, they've got an all-state halfback by the name of Bill Ramsdell. The Bill Ramsdell? The Bill Ramsdell. Little Billy's dad. Yeah, Little Billy's dad. And he is all-state running back, and he's going to kill us. Well, the first play, he receives a kickoff, and we hit him, and they carry him off the field. So we don't have faith Bill Ramsdell anymore. But I made the first coaching mistake of my life. When it was time to go out to warm up, I took my 22 little kids out in front of my bed, and we're doing callous and getting And here comes Bardstown out of the locker. <laughs> one after another, they circle the field before the last one gets out of the locker. They got 108 kids dressed out for football. They were powerhouse. I forget what they beat us, but it was soundly. 
How was your record that year? Oh, in uh, 08, oh, 07 and 1. The 1 was a tie. And how was the basketball team there? Uh, basketball took made up for the football and the baseball too. I had good basketball and baseball years. And how how many years then, were you in? Two years. The second year we hired a football coach and the basketball flourished. We had uh, we went to the finals of the region in uh, Shelbyville. Evan Settles beat us in the finals of the. Regional tournament. And from there to Regis. I went from there. They had a coach that had played or coached Lon Varnell's brother, Larry Varnell, at Regis. And uh, he, I had a big kid that I thought could play college ball. So I called Lon to see if he was interested. He said, no, I can't take him. Now, Lon was still at Swanee. Swanee, yeah. So he called Harvey Moore who was coach of Regis, and he came in and looked at James Rachel and offered him a scholarship. While he was there, I told him, I said, are they good high school jobs in Colorado? My cousin was out at uh, Colorado Springs and loved it out there. And Jack Taylor uh, sold me on the climate and the people and the outdoor life, hunting, fishing. So I asked his coach, I said, Harvey, are they good high school jobs out he said, would you come to Colorado? I said, I'd go anywhere for a good job. He flew on back, got back to Regis, called me and said, were you serious about wanting to come to Colorado? I said, yeah. He said, well, my assistant has resigned. He said, I'd like to fly you out and, and see how you like it. So he flew me out. I got there in the late afternoon. We packed up a car and went up in the mountain and fished all day the next day. We caught so many trout. We took them back. He, we dressed them, put them on dry, and I brought them home with me. About 22 uh, big uh, rainbow trout. Well, he sold me right there and uh, offered me the job, and I took it. And you were assistant how long? I was assistant one year. He resigned. They named me head coach. Now, I was head coach five years. That was your introduction to college basketball as a coach. Is there any one thing or any one individual that led you to thinking coaching is what I want to do the rest of my life? No, and if so, when? I knew it when I coached a little league baseball back in Cynthia. I love sports. Now you, and uh, if I ever had the opportunity, I would have jumped to some coaching position. When you uh, become head coach at Regis, two people I hear you often talk about who was instrumental to your time at Regis. One was a late Louis Stout, and the other one was Kozell Walker. They were two of the best. Both African-Americans. Both could have played anywhere in the United States. Louis was from my hometown, Cynthiana, and everybody in Cynthiana recruited him for me. And Louis was all-state, great high school player. I wish that the people in this area could have seen him more because he was just a sensation basketball player. And Cozell Walker had been uh, four years in the Air Force, four years in the Marines, and uh, was just getting discharged. And the reason that I got him, he was from uh, Western Kentucky. Uh, oh, what town? I'll think of it in a minute. But down on the Mississippi River, Clinton. And uh, Cozell was in the service, and he was ready to be discharged. But if for a reason, for educational purposes, he could get a six-month early discharge. 
are. So I had our president write the army where he was and tell him it would be to his advantage to get enrolled in summer school because he just had a GED, which I had gotten for him. His high school had burned down. All the records had been sent to a barn and were in storage. I had to get a lawyer (laughs) in the Clinton to go to that barn and find his high school to get him in GED classes so he could graduate. And I was the only coach that got him early discharge. So I had two as good a player as there were in the country. Now, that wasn't my first year, but I inherited a kid named Dennis Booth. It was a little All-American. And Ben Wesley, who was also a leading Denver player from Manuel High School, that could jump out of the gym. Well, Boone graduated before Louis and Cozell got there. But in one year, I had Louis, Cozell, and Ben with. All three of them were 20-point scorers. We had been a small college, and we had made the small college tournament. But our president at Regis wouldn't let us go because he didn't want to be associated with those small schools. So the next year, I went major college. Two-thirds of my schedule had to be major college schools. So that year we played uh, Cincinnati, Detroit, Xavier, uh, Arizona State, Arizona, Idaho State, Montana State, and many other major colleges. I was on a flight with Oscar Robertson from Cincinnati going to New Orleans in 12 when Kentucky won the title and sat with him and – we introduced ourselves to each other, and he said, you know Joe B. Hall? I said, yes, I do. And he says, you know, sis, I really admired him. Now, you tell me the rest of the story. Well, I don't know. How long ago was it? Well, this was in 12, but he was talking about when he was playing high All right, school He ball. was a freshman. Yes. The year we played Cincinnati. Yes. And he wasn't eligible to play against us. But with Lewis South and uh, James Ray Jones, and Ben Wesley and Dennis Boone. I had a pretty good ball club. And uh, Boone was a jump shooter from way out downtown Mm -hmm. and got up a mile high, and he could bust them. If there had been a three-pointer, he would have set the scoring record for the nation. But Oscar, when he was up here for a game, asked me, so who was that jump shooter? (laughs) He had watched the game and remembered how tough we had played. And Cincinnati at that time was a national contender. Right. Yes. And so was Detroit. Yes. Detroit had uh, Debusier. And I had sent my assistant, the night we played Cincinnati, I sent my assistant coach to scout Detroit. And they interviewed him after the game at Detroit and said, what was your impression of Debusier? And my assistant was quoted, saying that he was not impressed with Debucher. The third minute in the game, Debucher blocked a jump shot, one-handed grabbed the ball, laid down three dribbles, hit a jump shot at the top of the circle, came back by my bench, said, Coach, did that impress you? <laughs> when uh, your name started getting back around as a young coach on the rise, and you got a phone call one day from from Adolph about a position he had open. And at the time, suddenly you had a respect from him that allowed you to be in a position that 
when you left UK, you'd done it in such a way that there was no hard feelings, and he was calling you to join him. Well, I'd, when I'd have an opportunity to come back and be in this area, I would go in and watch a UK game, and I'd make a point to speak to Coach and Harry, who I greatly admired. And then when I had the good teams at Regis, and we beat Oklahoma State, and Hank Iba, they were ranked fourth in the nation. Well, that made Sports Illustrated. And Coach Rupp sent me a telegram. Congratulate me. Well, she was beating his whole competitor. They were both in contention for being the winningest coach in college basketball. And here I'd give Iba a defeat. So that went over big. With Coach Rupp. And he was needing a recruiter, though. Yeah, he called me when I was at Regis and offered me a job. And uh, I said, what are you offering me, Coach? He said, well, I need a recruiter. He said, I am game bank and recruit. And I said, well, Coach, I love coaching, and I don't want to just be a recruit. The Marquette coach. Anyway, he called me, and one, or he called my president. One talked to me, Eddie Hickey. Eddie Hickey called my president, Father Ryan, and asked to interview me for an assistant job. So Father Ryan called me in. He said, now, Joe, Hickey wants to talk to you about giving you a job. And in two years, he's going to retire and recommend you to take his place. But I want to tell you, you're going to have a better program than Marquette has right here at Regis. He said... I'm going to name you athletic director, give you an extended contract, pay you better, give you more scholarships. Well, I, that was all I wanted. So I turned Icky down, and I turned Coach Rupp down. And I said, Coach, if you ever have a coaching position, you don't even have to ask. Just send me an airplane ticket. So I moved that year. the end of that year, instead of getting more scholarships, I got scholarships taken away and budget decreased. Went in see the president. He said, I'm sorry, Joe, but the board said we got to cut back. So I left, went to central Missouri. I, I interviewed at Valparaiso, and Gene Bartow got the job. He was the coach central Missouri. So he recommend, called me, said, Joe, I've recommended you to central Missouri. So I called them. They said, yeah, come out. We'll interview you. But if we don't hire you, you have to pay your own expenses. <laughs> if we do, we'll pay your expenses. So I went, and they hired me. I was there one year, one uh, Conference, Christmas tournament, won the conference, took a team to the NCAA. In the end of that first year, Coach Rupp called me. He said, Joe said, uh, I want you to come be my assistant. I said, Coach, I told you before that I just wouldn't be a recruiter. What are you hiring me as? He said, I'm hiring you as a floor coach. He said, I know what you told I said, well, Coach, uh, what about Harry? He said, well, I'm going to make you number one assistant, and Harry's going to be the second assistant, and you're going to be my floor coach, and he'll have to go on the road and recruit. I said, well, I told you I'd come, and I will. So I went back, moved my family. First week I was there, Adolf said, uh, oh, the reason he, he was mad at Harry Harry wouldn't give up baseball. So in the spring of the year, when he need people on the road recruiting, Harry was tied up. Couldn't he was help coaching him. baseball. Yeah, Harry wouldn't give up baseball. My wife, Catherine, and I went out to Tate's Creek Country Club for lunch with Adop and Mrs. Rupp Hester. As we're eating, Coach Rupp said, Oh, Joe, here's somebody I want you to meet. 
said, Abe, come over here. So Abe came over and he introduced him. He said, Joe, this is Abe Shannon, our new baseball coach. So suddenly you become a recruiter again. But suddenly I became a recruiter. He had used me to make Harry give up baseball, and Harry did. You were coming in what turned out to be one of the most notable seasons in all of college basketball. And the first thing i got to ask you, because I've had several players from Larry Conley to Tommy Crom to Louis Dampier talk about the, I don't know where you call it, famous or infamous. I'm not sure what those two words mean, running program. Well, it wasn't only a running program. It was a conditioning program. Always Coach Rupp would have one-hour practices for about a week. Then he'd go an hour and a half so that he'd condition them through early practices, but he couldn't progress as fast as he normally could. So I told him, I said, Coach, if you let me have these guys, I'll put them in such condition that you can have all-out practice the first day, and they'll be in condition the rest of the year. And I'd run this program at Regis in central Missouri, and I developed it myself with weight training, distance running, stretching, and sprints. So I put it in. He said, go ahead. And I worked those kids for six weeks before they ever went on to basketball. Did he ever want to rebel? Or? Oh, yeah. they. I think the first year with the Rupp's runs, they went to Coach Rupp and said, Coach, we won't have a basketball team. He said, we'll all be dead. <laughs> And Coach called me, and he said, Joe, what are you doing in this program? I said, Coach, these are better athletes than I've ever been around, and I'm not asking them to do anything that Regis and Central Missouri didn't do. And I said, just leave me alone. I'll have them ready to play basketball. And so I said, you come out and watch today what we do. So he came out, and they had little steps there to finish line. He said, on the finish line. I sat there with him, and the assistants started to run. They were doing two 20s under 32 seconds at forced interval of a minute and a half. That meant that they would run a quarter of the track, walk across the track, get in the starting, and run again. And they do that. That day, I think we were running about seven or eight at forced interval. This will make you throw up if you're not in shape. And a lot of them did. But uh, so about the fifth one, they came around. And Riley came back right in front of Coach Ruppin and collapsed. Right all spread out. And he's quivering and jerking. And I'll never forget the spittle is running a string of spittle down into the dust. And the particles of dust are working their way back up the spittle. I'll never forget that. And I'm sitting there laughing. And Coach says, Joe, what are you going to do? Here's these All-American down there dying. I said, Coach, I'm going to give him an Academy Award and kick him in the butt and tell him, get back over in old block. <laughs> Riley staggers, gets back over, and runs the rest of the program. Now, in addition to that first year of getting this conditioning program started and having a phenomenal year, with the runs going all the way up to the Final Four, it's your first foray in to recruiting on the big, big-time level. And that was a class of Dan Issel, Mike Pratt, all those guys that Mike had that Casey, seven, Mike Casey. Dinwiddie, Mills. Yes. Tell me a little bit about those individuals in recruiting, well, particularly Mike Pratt and Dan Issel. Yeah, Pratt uh, wasn't a highly related player. I mean, uh, uh, rated. 
by Bones. Bones was a, they had him as a C-rated kid. And, so uh, they didn't have stars, they had ABC? ABC and double A and triple A. Okay. And he was ready to see. But uh, Dave Lutz, a Daytonian, uh, told me about Mike. And so I go up and see him. And boy, I, I think he's terrific. He'd been playing football. This was early in the season. And he is out of shape. He's kind of puffy, fat, and he's not too fast, can't jump, but he controls the whole game. Everything that happens, happens through him. He only gets about 12 points, but he's playing against a kid that is reputed to be the best kid in day, and he just outshines him all over the floor. And I, I see so much in him that I've got to have him. And I recruited him hard. I would tell him. Mike Casey, who's Mr. Basketball in Kentucky. Yeah, and Pratt wasn't even mentioned to Mr. Ohio. But after I got after him, Dayton took a dinner. I would tell him, I'd say, Mike, I'm afraid Cole Trump's going to give that last scholarship away before you have a chance to commit. He says, if he wants me, he'll wait. Well, Coach had never seen him play. <laughs> and, uh, but I'd tell him how bad we want. Everything. So finally, I got him signed. And then I had a big man. I had three big men. I had Joe Bergman from Iowa, George Janke from Dayton, Ohio, and Dan Esso from Batavia, Illinois. And I was recruiting these three guys hard. I mean, really hard. Because I felt we had to have a big man. And all of these were 6'10, 6'9. And uh, I really hadn't ranked them because. I would have taken any one of them. And uh, Issel commits to uh, Wisconsin and signs a Big Ten letter. Well, I think I've lost him. Which means, though, he not commitment is just bound to Big Ten Big schools, Ten, not the SEC. Not the SEC. So uh, he's still recruitable, and I still stay after him. But I go hard for Jackie. And Bergman. Bergman commits to Iowa, and Janky commits to Dayton. And Janky, I think I should have got him, but his mother passed away. His dad was a UPS driver. He had a little sister in grade school. And George Janky had to cook breakfast for his dad and his little sister, wash and iron her clothes, come home at night and fix dinner. And he was needed. So bad at that home, I didn't think I could ever recruit him. So even though Issel had signed the Wisconsin, I stayed hard after him. Well, I so recruited him that his dad told me that he wanted him to come to Kentucky for other reasons. And uh, so I hung with Issel, even though he had committed to Wisconsin. And uh, the student newspaper, the colonel came out, with a list of players that we were recruiting, and they left Issel's name out. They hadn't checked with us. They had just guessed at who Since all Since he'd already committed to Wisconsin, yeah, too. Yeah, So when Issel got that, it was a big deal with him. Oh, uh, you didn't even have me listed. Well, you all don't want me. You want George Janke. And uh, so anyway, I went up. His dad kept telling me, don't give up. Don't give up. So I knew I had the dad on the side. So I moved up to Aurora, checked in the motel, and stayed. Every day I went out with Mr. Issel. 
and he was an interior painter, and I'd sit on the paint box, and we'd talk all day. That night, I'd even take them out to dinner, or I'd eat dinner with the Issels. And uh, Dan would always leave, have a date, or go up to his room, study, and uh, we'd sit in the living room, talk, play cards, snack, do everything. And uh, I just stayed there. And finally, one night, Issel came downstairs. He said, where are those papers? I gave him the national letter and the SEC letter. I said, now you have signed right here on both these. And then your dad has signed. He takes them upstairs, <clears throat> stays about a half hour, comes back down and hands them to me. I opened them up. He has signed them. Man, I, I've got him. I said, Mr. Issa, would you sign? He, he said, no. He said, I'm going to let him think on it two or three days, and if he still feels that way, then I'll sign him. And he said, when I sign them, I'll put them in the mail and call you when they're in the mail. So three days later, he called. He said, Joe said, contract's in the mail, but signed by both of us. So I go in and tell Coach Rupp. I said, Coach, we got this. Papers are in the mail. He said, all right. Says, go get Harry. So I go get Harry and bring him in. He says, now, fella, this word is not to get out. Ever, anywhere. I don't want you telling your best friend, your wife, or anybody. Until we get those papers, we're not to say a word about this. If it does get out. I don't know one of you two did it. So they were having a state baseball tournament. And Casey, I don't know if he was playing or just up there. So Harry and I go up to the state baseball tournament up Hagen Field. We walk in. Here comes a big UK fan. Run. I hear you got Issel. said, what? I hear Issel's papers are in the mail. Well, how'd you find that out? Well, Coach Rupp just told me. <laughs> so... Here, Coach, he just wanted to be the first one to tell me. But in the recruiting of him, people now said that I didn't want this, that I wanted Janky. Well, I did go after Janky because I thought I lost this. But then when I assessed him, I liked Issel and Janky better than Burke. Uh, Janky went dating and came down here and played in the UKIT and made all-tournament team. He was a heck of a player. And if he'd been in our program and had gone through the running program and everything, he would have benefited with playing with Casey and Brett. How difficult was the recruiting of Casey? Casey was a Kentucky player, Susie, but a high school uniform on. And Harry Lancaster was real close with Casey's father. And we knew we had the inside track. And Although we did recruit hard and made sure he knew that we wanted him. And we also took Bill Busey, guard from his team. And, you know, that was laying the foundation for what some people believe in 70 was a team that was right up there with the 66 team. But you get into the 66 season, you're going along, going undefeated, you lose a late game in the, in the regular season. We'll sort of fast forward to the Final Four uh you beat Duke in the semifinals. Then you face Texas Western in the championship. What do you remember most about that time? Well, we didn't have much time to prepare for Texas Western. Because I think they played uh, 
who was it they played and beat the night before? A real good team. So we didn't know who they who were, we were going to play, really. Anyway, we were... Uh, Texas, uh, it was uh, <coughs> Utah. It was yeah, Utah. Utah. So I scouted Texas Western that night, and uh, they were kind of off of the charts, but they were still ranked in the top five in the nation. <coughs> so they weren't anything to be taken lightly. I think they were fourth in the nation. And uh, we had played a great game against Duke. And uh, both of us had a sick player. They had Vargas that was sick. We had Conley who was sick. Conley was bad. Probably shouldn't even play. And uh, I know the rumor was that Coach Rupp set up and rubbed goose grease on these chests all night. <laughs> but he did get doctored, got his fever down by game day against Texas Western, but he was weak and uh, had not fully recovered and probably shouldn't have played. But uh, Texas Western was a sound ball club. They were very well coached. They were hungry. They were quick. They were strong, strong on the board, strong inside. Their guards were extremely quick, good defense. So they were a a very formidable opponent, which no one had really taken seriously in the tournament until they got to the Final Four and be Utah. The black-white thing was never an issue. We had played against, Kentucky had played against many black players, so it wasn't an issue, and it was never mentioned. There were no Confederate flags on our bench or behind our there was There was talk years later from one writer who claims he was in the locker room. Every person I've talked to, seven or eight of different players, said there was nobody in that locker room other than UK personnel. If he was in there, he hid in the urinal or something, or a stall. And Coach Rupp never said anything no. racial about anybody. No. was never brought up. It would never point out or identify. They were a good ball club. As you got into the late 60s, Coach Rupp's health started taking a toll on him. Uh, You even had to coach a couple, three games when he was fighting diabetes in his foot. What was that like? Well, he was out for about six games. He had to go to the hospital, rest his foot. Uh, He had an ulcerated sore on his foot that wouldn't heal. And uh, he had to take some special infusion of... uh, antibiotics and uh, so he called me in and uh, told me I was going to have to take over the team totally and he said I won't interfere you run it your way and I said well coach that's the only way I'd take it and I said uh, what year was this now 67 68 it, it wasn't was the year 70. that western beat us We've in the s- region okay that'd been 71 then yeah next to last year yeah so I took them, the first trip was to Florida, and we got beat. A horrible trip. We we were flying private airline. We get to Charlotte or somewhere, and the pilot says, we got to land. We're flying down there, and we're going to get there the day before the game in practice. We uh, land in wherever it was. I can't remember, Georgia or somewhere. And uh, we have spent the night. They can't get the plane fixed. So the next morning we go out. And we're ready to fly, and we're going to try to get there in time to have a shoot-around in the early afternoon. And uh, they on plane is iced over. They hadn't de-iced the plane. So another hour, we lose. Well, we get into Florida in no time. 
for a shooter. Everything is broke our routine, everything. We lose a game, and uh, that we had five more games to go. We have to win every one of them to win the conference. And the last game is against Tennessee at home, and we win it. And we win the conference championship with those five straight wins. During and around that same period, a couple of things. First of all, St. Louis offered you their head coaching job. What was that the next year? I think it may have been the year before even. Yeah, it was. Was Because I came back and stayed three years before Coach retired. So that would have been 69 probably before the 70 team. 69. Uh, they called me and asked me to come and interview, and I did. And they they had a contract, and I was leery of promises. And I made them write into the contract four special provisions. One of them was to pay my assistance movie and to give them full benefits. And another one was uh, playing, I don't know, something to do with recruiting and something else. They agreed to them, and we signed a contract. When I went up there to work, I couldn't even get in an office. Now, you were there like, what, two or three or four days? Less than a week. a week. Well, I came back on a Saturday, went up there on a Monday, came home on Saturday, and I'm thoroughly, thoroughly ticked. The athletic director is in the service, and he's trying to run the program while he's serving his military. The president has gone on a retreat, and he's not there. The secretary won't let me in the office because Buddy Bramer, whoever was, hadn't cleaned out his office. So I'm furious. I got to get a phone company to come put me a phone in a classroom. I'm setting up a recruiting weekend to play and to go see the Blues hockey team play. I've got 12 kids coming in. I've done all this on the phone. I'm so mad I can't even see straight. Then they tell me that I can't get benefits for my assistant, nor do they pay moving expenses. And the other two, there was eight stipulations. They broke four of them, and I can't live with this. So I come home. Claude Vaughn calls me and says, Go Trepler on stop to you, and I'm taking him to the airport. So I'm going to pick you up, and we'll go over and pick up. Coach up. Now, Claude told a different story on that. He said I called him. I did not. And uh, so went over, got coached. We drove out to that little airport building. <laughs> and Adolf says, Claude, take my luggage and get me checked in. And we sat in the little Volkswagen. I was in the back. Claude and Adolf were in front. Coach said, Joe, I got to have you. I don't have anybody else. Said, Harry's moved up to AD. I don't have anybody knows the program, knows what we're doing. He said, I beg you to come back. And I said, well, coach, I wouldn't have left if he told me you wanted me. And said, will you recommend me as your as your successor? He said, yes, I'll recommend you. I couldn't get anybody to promise me. That was going to be a question. At the time that you were first offered a job, how difficult was it knowing that you know, at that time, it was pretty much assumed, which no one should ever assume, but that you would be the next coach at Kentucky. But coach was sort of hanging on well, beyond his, Harry, what his health Harry permitted. wouldn't even give me a raise. He was athletic. Director. I said, well, Harry, it would encourage me if you'd just give me a raise. 
Show me something. Do you appreciate what? Because you doing? really didn't want to go to Utah. No, uh, to St. Louis. Didn't want to go anywhere. Okay. And he said, "Well, I'm not going to pay you more than they paid me." I said, "Well, you're going to be the same prick as those other guys." <laughs> and uh, he said, "Yeah, I guess so." And I said, "Well, would you back me to have the head job?" He said, "Well, I don't know why you're going to mess up in the next two or three years." I said, "I couldn't promise you that." So I said, well, I'm off, going. So, so when Coach asked me to come back, I went over to see Harry Miller, I think. Or Harry came over to my house. I said, Harry, I'm going down and talk to Adolf, and I'm going to tell him that I'll come back if he will make a promise to support me for the head job. And I said, I'm going to have him call you from his house to, for you to formulate a statement and bring it over and read it to him and let him make that public statement. So I told Harry what I wanted Adolph to say, that I've asked Joe Hall to return and they've promised him that I'll recommend him as my successor within the framework of the board trust, if they can do this. Well, that's all I wanted. And uh, <clears throat> so Harry already had it written down. Came over and Adolph said, yeah, I'll make that statement. I said, I'm not coming to the press conference. And uh, so Adolph changed it. He said, now that Joe Hall has returned, <laughs> I'm going to recommend. There, there, was a, there was a lot of a lot going on those last five or six years of Coach Rupp's um, head coaching era here. And one of them that came up almost immediately after that was the recruitment of Tom Payne. Well, it wasn't an era at the time. It turned out to be bad. And uh, at that time, Tom was a, a great prospect. Seven foot one and a wedge body. He looked like a bodybuilder. And he was agile. And he had a, a toughness to him that it defied anybody bullying him or intimidating. He was ideal. And uh, we, had a, we had him get a tutor to help him with ACT. And he still didn't pass it. So he had to come and enroll on his own, spend a year, and prove that he could make college grades. So he came that year, and he was played on the marathon all team, was Scotty Bassler. Now, this was a 70 season. Yeah. Yeah. And he was awesome. But then the next year, he was qualified to receive grant aid and play. And he was just a tremendous prospect. And uh, by the end of the year, he had gotten into so many trouble situations that people had come to us and complained. And we made, T.L. Plain and I sat down and made a list and, and documented it and had witnesses, phone numbers, everything. Dean and men had charged him with two or three bad things. And uh, I saw that we were going to either lose him or he was going to be in jail or something. So T.L. and I have dinner with his father at the Imperial House. And we go through this list of 12, 14 things. Like he had taken a car to try out. He wasn't going to buy it and wrecked it and just left it. He had tore a house up at a party, ripped the doors off of the, ripped the banisters off of the stairway. He had uh, 
ordered a tailor-made suit, or two of them, and wouldn't pay for them. And he just, he had exposed himself in the dorms, and Dean the men had that. So at the end of the day, so, he used the hardship rule to go pro? Yeah. We, uh, we told his dad all these things, and we said, these are problems that you need to deal with. You need to talk to somebody and have him evaluated because he's, he's not right. And his dad said, well, I'll look into it. So about a week later, we hadn't heard anything. So I called his dad. I said, what you ever, did you ever talk to Tom? He said, yeah, but he said all those were lies. He said, wasn't any of it true? And I said, well, you feel this way? And you know, I'm not going to do anything? He said, of course not. It's a bunch of lies. So Sonny Vaccaro's the one that got him my pro contract. Sonny wrote me a letter. I've got it in the file. Said that he didn't solicit Tom, but the parents came to him and asked him if he could represent him in the pros. So that particular year, you bow out by losing to Western, and that's Tom's last year. And then Coach Rupp's coming back for one last year after that, 71-72. Actually, he told me two years, and it turned out to be three because his birthday fell in September, mm-hmm. and he claimed he'd already started that year. He was supposed to resign that year. So anyway, he'd, he stayed one more year. What was it like that last year when he was coming back? Because, like you said – it was even one more year than what it was supposed to have been. Well, Coach never would recognize that he was going to have to retire. He was he was going to fight it politically any way he could. And uh, the board trustees had interviewed me as to what I thought. And, put uh, you in a bad spot. Put me in a horrible spot. So I, I did what I should have done. I told them, I said, Coach up and what he has done in building this program and keeping it on top all these years deserves a right to call his say when he's retiring. It should be his decision and no one else's, and he deserves that, even if he's walking out there with uh, crutches and dark glasses on. So when he leaves... And, and they want to know if he was drinking, and I told him I nothing to say about so when you were officially hired, it wasn't all bells and whistles like it should have been. Well, well, here was a, a positive under culture up for 42 years. And uh, there were many people around that remembered Johnny Meyer and what he had done with the program. And Coach Rupp was the pro. And he was the baron, and he was the baron of the bluegrass. He was uh, the everything nationally and internationally in basketball. And you just don't put somebody out to to pasture like that. And him fighting it also. And it was tough. It was tough for the administration of the university who had retired professors that didn't want to be retired at 70. And uh, as Doc Singletary put it, he was going to be under fire if he let Coach Rupp stay on. And From then, the professors. 
Yeah, and it turned all the others loose. At the same time, you're going. We're going through this last year of Coach Rupp in seventy-one, seventy-two. All the young people under thirty-five have no idea what we're talking about here. But you had brought a group, a recruiting group on campus that last year. That were the Super Kittens, and there were actually games that I saw where the Coliseum was full for the Super Kittens, and half of them walked out when he got ready oh. for the varsity. Well, I tried to get Harry to let us play on off night. And he said, well, it wouldn't even pay for the lights. Well, so let, you wouldn't draw enough people to pay for the lights. First of all, tell me who the Super Kittens were. Well, it was Mike Flynn, Jimmy Dan Connor, Kevin Greavy, Bob Guyette, Jerry Hale, Steve Lockmuller, and G.J. Smith. And they were so much fun to watch. And there's some people who saw even more so when Coach Rupp saw that team playing. Like, maybe one more year and let me coach them too. Yeah. But that year, uh, 72-73, you had some weird scheduling back then. I mean, there was one stretch there where you played four consecutive games on the road in the SEC. How in the world could you prepare? You played on Saturday, Monday swings. Yeah. But – you know, you lost a couple three early, and then you come down the stretch, and Kentucky fans like to proclaim today that they have never stormed the floor at Kentucky. They did on that one night in March of 1973 at the Coliseum. When we beat Tennessee. And won the championship that yeah. you had to win to get into the tournament. Yeah. What do you remember most about that season? Well, it was uh, most enjoyable. The uh, kids were fun. I called them the cats and jammer kids. They were kids from good families. They were going to get in trouble. They were going to do things that young people do. And uh, and you had to understand that. And uh, the the final results were that they were very dedicated. They were hardworking. They were coachable. They were basically, and they've proven it since then, a fine group of young men, just character-wise, work ethic, and everything else. And they were pressured to coach. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Oscar Cohn. You can expect to hear part three and part four of Oscar's conversation with Coach Hall throughout the following weeks. Check back on oscarcombs.com for the latest episodes and past episodes of Conversations. You can also subscribe to Conversations with Oscar Combs via iTunes and in the Google Play Store. Just search for at Wildcat News and subscribe. Another way for you to listen is to download the SoundCloud app and search for at Wildcat News and subscribe as well. And of course, you can follow Oscar on Twitter at Wildcat News for the latest updates, news, and views about Wildcat athletics. I'm Bo Robinson, and I hope you've enjoyed Oscar's chat with Coach Joby Hall. We'll see you next time on Conversations with Oscar Combs.